thought as we began this morning that perhaps we ought to do a little bit of a little bit of recap to help those of you who were here last week and certainly to help those of you who weren't here last week and you're wondering what in the world you've gotten yourself into by coming this week. Uh, enough of a challenge to jump into Joel, let alone jump into the middle of Joel and, uh, and not know where we are. So I'd like to do just a, a little quick recap and then we'll get into Joel 2.18. It's all from uh, Joel chapter number one, the disciplining hand of God. And we saw his disciplining hand of the Israelites, and he does it through a locust plague. Um, this was a well-known event. In fact, Joel starts out talking about it, tell your children about it, talk about it, as if he doesn't even have to describe what this is. Uh, he just says, let's talk about it. Kind of be like today, if someone said 9-11, no one has to go into any more detail about what that means. And the same thing for Joel. He says, tell your kids about it, and everyone knows the exact date and the events that he's talking about. And so we're not entirely sure the exact date of, of the book of Joel. We just have some generally good ideas. I mentioned last week that we think our best guess puts us somewhere in the region of 2 Kings 11 and 12. We're talking about most likely a contemporary of Elisha. And that kind of helps us get our historical perspective. We're talking the time of kings, we're talking about the time when Israel's kings were wicked and evil and Judah's kings um, were randomly good, but mostly evil as well. And so God's judgment had come for a variety of reasons. And so we see in Joel chapter 1, God disciplining his people. And he disciplines them. There's famine and there is mourning and weeping all throughout Joel chapter 1. You get to the end of Joel 1 and Joel says, what you need to do is repent. You need to come back to God because his disciplining hand is on you, on his own people. And that raised a question for us last week. And that is, does God still work that same way today? Does God still discipline his children? And we turn to Hebrews 12 to find out that absolutely yes, God does discipline everyone who is a true child of his own. And so the words from Joel that were appropriate for the Israelites, it's also the same thing that's true about our God today. We have a God who disciplines his children. How do we know when God is disciplining us? Well, how did the Israelites know that God was disciplining them through this locust plague? God sent them a prophet, a prophet named Joel. So how can you know when God is disciplining you? Well, today, God speaks by his spirit through his word. And so we can't look at every single sickness or every kind of illness and imagine that every single thing bad that happens in life is God's discipline. All right? that's, that's not the case. It's not the case that every fire that sweeps through California and every earthquake that strikes the world regions is, is God's disciplining hand on his own children. And yet, if God is working in your heart and there is something that you have not repented of, you ought to expect that his disciplining hand is going to come on you. There is sin that is unconfessed, whether you know that from a sermon or you've been reading your personal time and you won't let that go. If you're a true child, God will always pursue you until you repent of that. And that's what's happening in Joel 1. God is pursuing his children. He's disciplining them. We need to distinguish rightly between trials and discipline. Sometimes they're just hard things in life. And they come to us because we live in a fallen world. And the right response to trials is to cheerfully endure, while the right response to discipline is not endurance, but repentance. And that's what we see from Joel chapter 1. We move on to Joel chapter 2, and we see something entirely different than the disciplining hand of God. We actually see the judging hand of God in the day of the Lord. And while the locust plague was really bad, it was nothing compared to the coming day of the Lord. The big difference between Joel 1 and Joel 2 is that Joel 1 is a localized discipline from God on his people. And in Joel 2, you have a universal judgment. In Joel 1, 
after the discipline comes, Joel says you need to repent. In Joel 2, Joel doesn't say, wait until this happens and then repent. He says you have to repent now because the judgment that's coming is going to be a punishing judgment. The only way to escape that is to repent right now. Okay, so Joel 2 moves on to thinking about the pagan nations, the whole world being judged by God. Now, that's what we're talking about in the day of the Lord. All the events from the tribulation um, all the way through the final great white throne judgment are all wrapped up in the day of the Lord. And really, that, the great last judgment, when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, that is the epitome of the day of the Lord, God's great universal judgment on all mankind. And the only way to escape that judging is to do what Joel 2.12 2.12 says, and that is, return to God with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. The only way to escape is a genuine heart repentance. And so that's where we've been so far. Basically, what we have seen so far teaches us that we need to know the necessity of repentance. Whether it's for a believer or an unbeliever, it is necessary for us to repent. We're going to move on today to find out that Joel will teach us to believe in the blessings of restoration. So it's necessary to repent, but there are blessings that come with that repentance, the blessings of restoration. And what are those blessings of restoration? We're going to see today that God promises material blessings for his people. He promises spiritual blessings for his people. And he promises national blessings for his people. So let's look down at Joel 2, verse number 18. Joel 2, 18 is a marked transition in the book of Joel. It's actually... Another place where perhaps our chapter divisions don't do us a favor, we really should see a major transition in verse number 18. Verse 18 reads, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Joel 2.18, everything changes. It changes from God is going to judge and God is going to discipline and you must repent. And in between the white space between 17 and 18, um, we have to assume that the people of God have responded rightly in repentance, just like they've been told to do. They've gathered together and they've repented. And so then, verse 18, the Lord becomes jealous for his land. And now the whole tone of Joel changes and it goes from one of lament and of mourning to talk of salvation. So our message this morning is one of restoration and hope. If you're here last week, perhaps you're saying, good, after last week's message, I need some good news. We talked about discipline and, and judgment and this universal judgment, and it was kind of heavy and it was kind of thick, and we talked about God being the punishing God, and we don't often, probably not often enough, dwell on that aspect of God. And yet this week we get to move on to the restoration, the blessing that, that the Lord brings. And so we read in verse 18 that the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Those two ideas of jealousy and pity, they show Yahweh's intensely passionate action on behalf of his people to rescue them. It says he became jealous for his land. And we think of jealousy in an extremely negative term, right? We think of the green-eyed monster and someone that's being selfish and petty. And yet this idea of jealousy is part of the heart of God's holy character. See, God has a passionate desire for his own glory, as demonstrated through his own people. And so he has, a, he has a jealousy that burns within him, that he longs to raise up his people. He longs for them to be holy. He has a passionate concern for them. And just as we would say it's right for a husband to have a, a there's a right jealousy over your wife, but you certainly can have a wrong jealousy. But we wouldn't say that any man who doesn't care about his wife and doesn't care what happens to her and doesn't mind you know who taught who, you know, comes into his home and 
No, we would say, look, if you're a husband and, uh, and a burglar's on the way to your house and he's going he's gonna to break in your house, uh, if you're the man of the house, then it, you step up and you deal with the situation, right? You don't go, well, wife, you're on your own. Good, good luck with that nasty guy breaking into the house. Um, no, a, a right husband is going to have a certain kind of jealousy to respond to a threat to his family and to his wife, and that's what we see here from the Lord. He's a, he has a jealousy, and he has it for his land, and he has pity on his people. What land are we talking about? What's Joel talking about? Joel's talking about the promised land. Okay? We're talking, talking of Israel here. He says he, the Lord has pity. He has compassion on his people. We usually throw that, that term around. What do we mean by his people? We're, Joel's talking about the Israelites. Okay? We're talking about the people of God as in the Israelites. So God becomes jealous for his land, the promised land of Israel, and he has pity on his people, his chosen people of Israel. That's his twofold concern. And so in verse 19, the Lord answers and he says to his people, to the Israelites, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. We read in these following verses that God's, God comes to the Israelites and he says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to fix all of, the, all of the despair, all of the drought, all of the famine, all of the oppression. I'm going to deal with all of that. He says, I'm going to remove the northerner far from you, the invader, those who have taken your land. And he uses really strong language in Joel 2.20. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send his vanguard or his front army goes into the eastern sea. The Israelites would have understood that to be the Dead Sea. And his rear guard into the western sea. That's the Mediterranean. God's saying, I'm just going to crush this army and spread it all over the promised land. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. I mean, read things like that in the prophets and we just, I mean, the language is so potent and it's so powerful, the stench and the smell. And it's this picture of this battlefield where there's just carnage everywhere. And, and why has that happened? Because the Lord is jealous for his people. In fact, he's coming with blessing for them. This is blessing for his people. And he says, fear not, O land. In fact, you should be glad and rejoice, which is the exact opposite of the commands that we've seen earlier in chapter 2. Instead of weeping and mourning, he says, you should be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. He said, look, you've, you've been oppressed by people who have invaded you, and they've done great things. But don't fear, because now the Lord is going to do great things. He's going to do great restoration. In verse 22, he even says, You don't have to fear beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. And if you can remember from last week and what we saw earlier in Joel, remember we read that even the animals were crying out for God's help because there's no food. And even sheep who can survive on so little are desperate for water and for food. And so what we see here is a total reversal of, of the destruction and of the famine and of the drought that Joel has already talked about. We see here very clearly material blessing, even for the animals. So now we have grass again. The pasture of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. Remember, Joel talked about the locusts came in and totally stripped the trees. And what one locust left, another locust ate. And so they, the, all the trees were completely stripped of their fruit. Now, Joel says, because of your repentance, God is going to bring material blessing. Verse 23 says, Be glad, children of Zion. Talk about Zion. We're talking about Jerusalem. It stands for the whole nation. You need to rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. In other words, God is sending a blessing, a vindication for you. Why do they need vindicated? Well, because Israel had been attacked, and so they, the nations were saying, where's their God? And the Israelites were going, boy, I, I don't know. I mean, we've, we've been oppressed. We've been taken into captivity. We're in a bad way. Where is our God? And our land is stripped. It's reduced to nothing. There's famine. There's drought. 
there is no evident hand of blessing on our lives, where is God? And God says, I'm going to send a material blessing on the promised land to my promised people to demonstrate that you are vindicated, that you are my people. Verse 23 tells us that he has poured down for you for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, just like before. When we talk about early and latter rain, the early rain would be from October to December, and the latter rain would be in March and April, which would be like harvest rains, necessary rain. They need both. You need the early rain whenever you're getting ready for planting, and you need the latter rain right before you harvest. And so God says, I'm going to provide these very material, these very physical blessings for you. He says the threshing floors are going to be full of grain, the vats will overflow with wine and oil. Do you remember where we were last week? Last week, we had no food, we had no grain, we had no oil, we had no way to even make a sacrifice to God because all the food's gone and all the animals are dying. So there's no way to sacrifice to God. And God says, I'm going to restore all that to you. In fact, verse 25 says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. This is a fascinating verse. And regrettably, it's a verse that has taken a lot of uh, twisting. And perhaps if you're familiar with only a few verses in Joel, this might be one of them. Right? This might be one of the verses that you've heard. I'll restore the year which the locusts have eaten. And it, just be, it becomes like a, like a Christian cliche. You know, God is, God, is going to, God is going to restore whatever bad thing happened in your past. When Joel says, I will restore the years which the locust has eaten, he's talking about years that locusts actually ate their food. All right? We're talking a very physical, a very real. The locusts actually did come in and eat all their stuff. And God says, I'm coming, I'm coming to bless you. I'm going to restore all that time. It's all going to be fixed. It's all going to be corrected. I'm going to bring all that back. And the idea of restoration, the idea that should be very easy for us to understand in our very lawsuit-oriented society, the restore has the idea of make a legal restitution for damages done. I'm going to pay you back. I, I'm going to give back to you what has been taken away. And who took it away? This is the amazing thing in verse 25. Who took the years away? The great army, which who sent among them? Which God sent among them. God says, I, I was disciplining, I was, bringing, I was bringing punishment to you, and now I'm going to bring restoration from my own discipline. Because you have responded rightly, you've repented, and now I'm going to come with a very material blessing for you. Verse 26 says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. So you'll have more than enough, and what will the response be? You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. And this is God's intent in restoration, in this very material restoration that his people would praise his name. He's concerned also, verse 26 says, that my people will never again be put to shame. No more mockery of the Jews. No more mockery of the Israelites. No more asking, where is God? Verse 27 says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. We need to understand that this material blessing is not something that this promise has not been fulfilled. All this talk of material blessing has not happened yet. In fact, we could even look at Israel right now and say, is God really in the midst of Israel? Is he really there? He's not worshipped appropriately. They haven't recognized their Messiah. Is God recognizable in the midst of Israel? And at this point, we have to say Israel is still suffering under the actual land of Israel, is still suffering under the disciplining hand of God even now. And yet God says there's going to come a time when I restore you, and you are going to know that I am there in your midst. This is something that God has always been concerned about with the Israelites. If we went back to the Exodus, 
Over and over again in Exodus, God said, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God has always been concerned with the Israelites to say, I'm your God and you need to recognize who I am. And this restoration will accomplish that. Finally, they will know. Israel will go, oh, I see the true God. He's here with us. And he is the Lord, their God, and there is none else. There is no other God except the one true God. And that's something the Israelites have, have struggled with ever since. Their inception as a nation, recognizing who the true God is. They were constantly plagued with idolatry, constantly plagued with running after other gods. And God says, because of this material blessing, you are going to know that I'm the Lord your God and there isn't any other. And so the false god of Judaism today, their worship of of legalism, their pursuit of a god of their own making, is going to be ripped away and they're going to worship the true God, the God who has sent their Messiah. And he says, my people shall never again be put to shame. You see the, see the universal language? My people will never again be put to shame. I'm going to restore to you completely. There's a fullness to this that lets us know we're not talking about something that currently exists. Israel has not been fully restored. And God says, because of your repentance, I'm going to bring a material blessing. So, if that's what Joel is clearly telling, that there are very material blessings, so what for us? I mean, what's the point? If, 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 you're, if we're on board and we just covered you know, these, these 10 verses or so and you say, okay, I see, we're talking something very physical. We're talking about food and wine and we're talking about grass and we're talking something very material. So how does that touch, touch our lives? Because you keep saying it's the land, it's the promised land, so, so, so what for us today? And you really need to, we need to be warned that there are, there are some unfortunate ways of approaching a passage like this in Joel that lead in an interpretive direction that lead to application that I think is totally out of bounds and we actually miss what God is intending for the book of Joel. In fact, as we've studied Joel, what we said from the beginning is our goal is to hear what God says from Joel as well as to gain confidence in our whole Old Testament that we can understand it. And we cannot understand our Old Testaments without understanding this passage, these passages in their context for what they intended. And what God intended from Joel 2 the verses that we have just studied, is that God is going to bring material blessing to his chosen people, the Israelites. Okay, that, That's the part that needs to be understood in our minds. And unfortunately, there are some people who would look at this passage and, and it would really lead them in an unhelpful direction. Uh, so, for instance, you have the health, wealth, and prosperity folks who read passages like this in Joel 2. In fact, there are numerous passages all throughout the Old Testament that clearly say that God is going to bring a material blessing in a great way. Great provision, um, more than more than has ever been experienced before, and so you say, that's not it's not just in Joel too; it's all throughout the Old Testament. So you say, oh, maybe, maybe they have a point. Well, you have to understand Joel two correctly. This Joel two is saying material blessing for who? For the Israelites, and it's a time that's coming that is not now; it's a time that is coming in the future. In fact, this is a time when they will recognize their God for who He truly is. There is a time of material blessing that is coming that is not now. So God never promises that, that you, as a Christian, can have this kind of material blessing right now in your life. So as you're reading Joel 2, you can't go, well, God promised that he's going to pour down abundant rain, and I need the rain of finances in my life, and so I'm just going to trust that that's what's going to happen to me. Uh, that's, not, that's not what this passage says. This passage says that after repentance, then God will bring a material blessing. And so you say, okay, so health, wealth, and prosperity is, is not the idea of this passage. Um, 
maybe we need to understand that that we should really substitute the church in for this idea of, of Israel being restored and getting blessing. And so a lot of people, when I say a lot of people, I'm talking about people who are my friends and people who are, who are godly people, people who, who care about the word of God. They would look at the prophecies of the Old Testament to Israel and they'd say, the only way we can make sense of this and apply it to ourselves is to kind of do a substitution. So when you read God's going to bless Israel materially, you, you just kind of substitute God will bless the church spiritually, all right? And you kind of, you kind of switch those two, two around. And so you say all this, all this blessing of material provision, we just need to understand that in God's going to bless the church and, and more people are going to become saved. And this, these are all church kind of blessings. And I think it's, it's crucial for us to have a right distinction between the very material provisions that God is blessing here and the spiritual provisions that he promises elsewhere, all right? When we talk about the the grain and the rain and, and all these things, that's actually what we're talking about. We're not talking about some kind of spiritual blessing. We're actually talking about a material blessing coming to God's chosen people. So we can't just put, we can't just substitute us um, in there and say, well, God's going to give us spiritual blessing. He's going to, you know, he's going to respond to our repentance and give us great spiritual blessing. That's not the point. So you say, okay, fine. It's not health and wealth and we can't just substitute the church. And so, so what, what is the point for us? Well, the point is that the material blessings clearly demonstrate that God is with Israel and he alone is the true God. See, there's one God that we should worship today. That's the true God of Israel. And that's the God who keeps all of his promises. You see, when God says, I'm going to bring material blessing, he's actually keeping promises he made to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he would give him a land. And that doesn't mean he promised Abraham a land and then he changed his mind and created the church and substituted the land for the church. He, when God promised Abraham he could have a land, he meant it. And that promise has not been fulfilled in its entirety. And so we can look forward to a time that there's actually going to be a physical land that is Abraham's. And this is part of God keeping those promises. We know that God made promises to David. God promised David some very physical blessings that would come to him. And this is part of God keeping the promises to David. And this is the God for us to worship today. This is the God whose promises can be trusted. You know, even for us today, we can look at Israel's situation, we can look at the world situation, we can say, maybe God's done with Israel. Maybe, maybe it's over. Passages like this, these prophetic passages say, no, God always, always keeps his promises and he's still working out his plans. And that's a God that you can trust to still work out his plans in your life too. The Israelites really, really messed up through idolatry, through sin. There was constant failure. And yet, what can we see from, about God from Joel 2? We see a God who comes to people who repeatedly sinned, who violated his commandments, who broke his laws, who in fact caused their own judgment and discipline and even captivity. And yet, when they return to God, when they repent with a heartfelt repentance, what does God do? God responds with great blessing. He promises, I'm going to pour out material blessing to you and I'm going to, in fact, remind you that I am the Lord your God. That same God is a God who responds to our repentance today. I mean, it's the same God. The point is, this is a God who, who responds to people who repent. And just like he's going to respond in a very physical way to the Israelites, this is a God who, who reacts when we repent as well. This is a God who responds to us with blessing. It's a God who we can trust. And so we can see the character of God from Joel 2. He's not a God who casts off his people and who's going to forget his promises, who's going to say, 
you guys messed up so bad that I'm done with you. It's over. Forget it. This is a God who always, always, always keeps his promises. Even the promises that were very physical, that we would say are very earthly, he's going to keep all of those promises. And God's purposes, revealed in verses 26 and 27, really lift this material blessing so far above the, the shallow pettiness of us wanting to have goods. Right? This is not the Israelites want to have possessions and, and they want to be healthy and wealthy and, and prosperous. This is, this is about the glory of God who is demonstrating that I am the true God and there's none even like me. This is not some petty materialism that there is material blessing. This is to the glory of God who always keeps his promises. This is not about the accumulation of wealth. This is not about the Israelites getting comfortable. It's about them doing what? Verse 27, knowing who the real God is, knowing that he's in the midst of them, knowing that he's the only true God and there isn't anyone else. This is so much of a more of a grander purpose and motive for material blessing than we would ever get from the false health and wealth teachers of our day. This is the glory of God as revealed in history because he made his promises to Israel and he's going to keep those promises and we are all going to worship him because here's a God who keeps his promises in a very physical way. This is a God for us to worship today. He's going to bring material blessing in response to repentance. That's not all he's going to bring, though. He's also going to bring very specific spiritual blessing. Verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit Talking about, well, what are, what are those days? Again, Joel is looking into the future. Joel 1 looked into the past. Joel 2 started looking into the future at the coming day of the Lord. And Joel is now continuing to look deep into the future. And he says, it's going to come to pass after this repentance and this material blessing that God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. You say, uh, why is that necessary? Why is this an encouragement? Why is this spiritual blessing? I mean, we, we all have the Spirit, and God's poured out His Spirit on us. What, what is the promise here for the Israelites? Well, we need to understand what was happening in the Old Testament. Remember, we're placing Joel somewhere in Kings. What happened in the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit would come temporarily and specifically to enable people to do a function. And so you have kings that would receive the Holy Spirit in a special way to be the right kind of king. You had prophets who would who the Spirit would come on them in order that they could prophesy, to say a specific word from the Lord. And this promise in Joel 2 is that the Spirit would come not just on a select few, not just on the leaders, not just on the guy who was crafting the tabernacle. The Spirit would come on all flesh. And so your sons and daughters, so the Israelites' sons and daughters would prophesy, young and old. Your old men are going to dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. They would have this supernatural activity within them that comes from the Holy Spirit. That was a spiritual blessing that they had never experienced like this before. Even, in fact, in verse 29, even the male and female servants in those days, I will pour my spirit on them. So even the slaves, even the lowest of the society, even they would have the spirit. So this is, this is not an exclusive giving. This is for all of the people of Israel. This is a spiritual blessing coming from God in response to repentance. Well, what else is going to happen in those days? In those days, verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. And here's where we start going, 
I knew, I knew I go to the prophets and I get all weirded out because what in the world is going on? Well, God's going to show wonders. And, and so the, this terminology of blood and fire and columns of smoke, we're talking about the carnage that's left over from warfare. All right? He's using that kind of terminology, warfare. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. We have this picture of complete change in the heavens, complete celestial change. And so the sun is turned to darkness, whether it's because God actually turns the sun off or because the sun is veiled completely by the smoke that has ascended um, from all of the fighting. The moon's turned to blood. And when does that happen? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And now Joel returns to this idea of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And all this is going to happen before that day of judgment comes. Joel is going to tell the Israelites how they can have the spiritual blessing of avoiding the judgment that comes on the day of the Lord. How will that happen? Verse 32. And it shall come to pass in those days. So we're talking days of tribulation, end times. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel is giving them the only solution for escaping the judgment that comes on the day of the Lord. It's calling on the name of the Lord, calling on the character of God. He says, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, again, symbolic for all of Israel, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Escape what? Be survivors of what? We're talking about escaping and surviving the great wrath of God that's poured out in universal judgment in the end times, the last days, the day of the Lord. How are these people going to escape? How are they going to survive? They're going to call on the name of the Lord. We know that the day of the Lord is coming. Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. We don't know when. We just know that there is a day when God is going to come back and bring judgment to this earth. Peter said the same thing in 2 Peter 3.10, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And what's going to happen? The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, in the New Testament, uh, it's not just a bizarre Old Testament prophetic idea that, that there's going to be all these changes, even, even in the stars. We have that in New Testament. And Peter says, look, there's going to be a day. It's the day of the Lord, and, and this earth is going to be consumed, and the heavens are going to melt, and there are going to be these cataclysmic changes because God's universal judgment is coming. Let's flip over to Revelation chapter 7. Who are these people that escape? Revelation chapter 7. Perhaps you're saying, we're going... Uh, out of the frying pan into the fire. I have enough problems in Joel. Now we're going to Revelation that I don't understand any better. Um, But in Revelation chapter 7, I think we see the best example of who exactly it is that Joel is talking about, these people who escaped the day of the Lord. Revelation 7, 9, um, John looks and behold, he sees a great multitude that no one could number. And it's from every nation. Okay, who did Joel, Joel say could be saved? all those who called on the name of the Lord. And so John here says, I see a great multitude and they're from all tribes and peoples and they're standing before the throne and before the lamb and they're clothed in white robes and they have palm branches and they're crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels echo amen in verse 12 and they declare blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. There's this amazing scene of heavenly worship and And one of the elders talks to John and he says, John, 
who are these who are clothed in white and where have they come from? And John says, I have no clue. Why are you asking me that? Uh, I don't know. You know. And so he says to them, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. See, there are those who will escape the great tribulation because they have called on the name of the Lord. That's exactly what Joel is prophesying, that there will be those who would be saved, who would be rescued, who would be called out. And that would include Israelites, and that would include people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. You need to know this morning that there is a day coming when God will pour out judgment on mankind. And he is just to do that. It is right for God to pour out the judgment Because mankind has sinned. They have violated God's laws. They have broken his commands. They have chosen to rebel and fight against him. And one day God will decisively deal with all those who rebel against him. In fact, the only way to escape that judgment is to call with saving belief on the name of the Lord. It's to turn away from trusting yourself to bring salvation and it's to turn to God. And with All the clarity of the New Testament from after the cross, we can look back and say what Joel is talking about is those who are saved because of their belief in the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. That is the only way to be saved from this universal judgment. And there will be those, Joel promises, who even during the time of great tribulation will turn to Christ. There will be those who will receive great spiritual blessing. And that is promised when God's people return to him there will be this amazing blessing for them. So the picture is one of end times and it's of people turning to Christ and being saved, being rescued from that, from the very physical torment and in fact from all of the torments of hell. There's one very major issue with these verses and that is that Peter quotes these verses in Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2 is the account of Pentecost and, and the Holy Spirit comes down in, in Acts 2, and people are saying, these guys are speaking in tongues. Are they drunk? Are they mad? What's going on? And Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost, and he preaches a message. And in that message, in Acts 2, he says, look, guys, these people aren't drunk. Uh, they're, not, they're not crazy. What's going on is exactly what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Acts 2.16, and then he quotes the verses that we just studied about God will pour out his spirit, and there's going to be wonders in the heavens and the earth. And and Peter says, this is what Joel was talking about. Now, why is that, why is that a big problem? Why, why is that an issue? Because we don't have any word in, in Acts about anything happening to the sun and the moon. And, and we don't know, we haven't seen any kind of the material blessing that God promised beforehand. Um, we, we don't see any of the context of Joel outside of the pouring out of the Spirit happening in the book of Acts. And so people have long debated what was what did Peter mean? What is Peter talking about? And there are some who would basically explain away Peter's use of this passage and say, well, Joel 2:28 is not actually talking about Pentecost. Okay? We have to deal with honestly with the fact that that Peter said this is what was said by Joel, okay? Whatever else it means, it has to mean it, it has to mean this is what he said. It cannot mean this is not what he meant when he prophesied. Okay, It has to mean somehow this is what he meant. So what exactly, how exactly is Joel 2 connected to Pentecost? And, and there's, direct, there's direct connection to all of us in this. All right, that's why, that's why I bring this up. Peter quotes 
Joel chapter, Joel chapter 2, and I believe this is the best understanding of that, is because Peter is looking at all of the days. He's in the last days. And in fact, later on in his sermon, Peter specifically says that now that, the, now that Christ has ascended and we have the event of Pentecost, we're in the last days. Okay? Are you aware of that? You are, you are living in the last days, the, the end times. You're, you're in them. And a characteristic of those last times in that last day of judgment are all the things that Joel is talking about. And so Joel is talking about the very end. He's looking at, at that very, those very last minutes of the day of judgment. And what Peter is doing is he is, he is looking at the beginning. And, and yet these characteristics are true at the beginning, just as they're going to be true at the end. And what Peter does, he says, when Joel said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, that's happening at Pentecost. And there are some things in Joel 2 that didn't happen at Pentecost, and yet there is an initial fulfillment that happens in in Acts chapter number 2. God does pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so because the last days have begun, now we have this beginning pouring out of the spirit. A lot of times the prophets, they, they see the distance, and there are a lot of things in between that they don't have a clear picture of. So for instance, when the, the Messianic prophecies prophesied about Jesus coming, they, did, they never saw any gap between first coming and second coming. You know that? They just talk about his coming. Now, we know uh, with further revelation that Christ came once and now he's going to come back again. The Old Testament prophets see all that happening at the same time. It's like they, they see with the telescope and they, they see all the way to the top and there's a couple events in the middle that they don't, they don't see all of that picture. And that's definitely what I think is a component of what's happening here. And there's also an aspect of what we'd like to call already, not yet. And that is that there, there's already parts of this passage that have been fulfilled and there are some that are not yet. And I don't think that's such a, a bizarre concept to understand because we think that same concept even in regard to salvation. In fact, Ken even made an allusion to it this morning, right? Um, are you saved right now? Yes, there are some of you who are saying, yes, I'm saved right now. And yet there's an aspect of your salvation that you do not enjoy right now. Because you're still stuck in your sinful body, you're stuck on this sinful earth, you are not completely saved from, you're certainly saved from all of the power of sin, but you're certainly not saved from the presence of sin. And so you know that one day you're looking forward to a perfect existence in heaven, right? And you're not there yet, all right? You're stuck here. You already have salvation, and yet there's elements of that that are, that are not yet here. Same is true with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given as a foretaste of what is to come, you have him already, you have that taste of heaven, but you don't have the fullness. And so I think it's a very biblical idea to understand that there are, there are aspects that we can have now, and yet the fullness, the fullness of the completion waits. And that's what's happening in Joel 2. God's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, and so Peter can say, hey, that's, that's happening now at Pentecost. And yet all the rest of the events, and certainly the events of the day of the Lord, haven't happened in Acts 2. In fact, Paul came along and he said, there are some who are, who are confusing you saying the day of the Lord has already happened. And Paul says, that's just not true. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. Okay, so that's the Joel 2 and Acts 2 issue. And yet what we can take away from that is that God has promised one day a spiritual restoration. And he's promised that to his people. He's also promised that judgment is coming. How is it that we can escape this day of judgment? How, how can we avoid this judgment? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, we have another mention of the day of the Lord. And let me just read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he's thanking his God always for them because of the grace that's given them. And he says they're not lacking any spiritual gift as they wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That day of the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly what Joel's talking about, that universal day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And Paul here says, here's how you can remain guiltless. You can be sustained through the Lord Jesus. So the salvation in Joel 2, the only way that you can experience that salvation is through the Lord Jesus. And he can keep you guiltless and preserve you until that day of judgment when it is revealed that you are one of his. And that judgment does not need to fall on you because it has already fallen on Christ. That is hope for you today that Christ can take your punishment. He can take that judgment. And yet, that's not an automatic thing. You do not automatically receive the blessing of Christ's death for you. He, he demands of you that, that if you have never repented of your sin and believed in him, that you would, that you would embrace him as your savior. You need to be saved. And how is that saving work accomplished? It's through Christ on the cross. That's the spiritual blessing that Joel prophesies and depends on. And he moves on from that. We have material blessing. We have spiritual blessing. And finally, in chapter number three, all of chapter three tells us about a national blessing. He tells us in Joel chapter three that Israel will be restored, that all the nations who have plagued them and attacked them will be judged. In fact, in verse 14, we read that there are multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. That decision is the valley of judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. In other words, God is going to bring down his judgment that he has been talking about. And why does all this judgment happen? Why does God tell the nations to get together for war? In verse number 9, he tells them to beat their plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You're probably used to seeing that the other way around, right? You're used to saying, hey, beat your swords into plowshares. Joel here says, turn it the other way around. I want everybody to get a weapon. I want you to gather together. In verse number 12, why are you getting together? It's not for a battle. It's because God is sitting to judge the surrounding nations. Because when God judges the surrounding nations in that final universal day of judgment, verse 17 happens. So you Israelites will know that I am the Lord, your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, Jerusalem, shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. There is going to be a national restoration of Israel. Verse 19, Egypt's going to become desolation. Edom, a desolate wilderness, the nations that stand for all those who oppose God. But, verse 20, Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. Israel is actually going to be populated and be populated for all eternity. There is actually going to be a national restoration. Well, so what? So what that there's going to be a national restoration? Joel is continually holding before us the need for repentance as well as the blessings that come with restoration. He says there needs to be repentance before this restoration can happen. And as we look forward into the future and know that one day God will restore his people, do you know what else we can know? We can know that as Christians, we can have a share in the blessings that are going to come to Israel. You see, in Christ, Paul Torres in Corinthians, all of the promises of God are yes. And what promise is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament promises. We get a share in this. We get a share in the blessing that is to come. And someday, we will actually get to be kingdom citizens on a real earthly kingdom. Now, we have the taste of it. Now, we have God's 
God's kingdom at work in our heart, but someday we get to be a part of an earthly kingdom that God has promised. He promises it all throughout the Old Testament, and he's promising it here in Joel. He says at the end of Joel 3.21, the Lord dwells in Zion. Someday, Jesus Christ himself will actually be physically present here on earth. In that time that, that we call heaven, perfection for all of eternity, God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, here on earth. There's a time of restoration coming and it's coming because God always keeps his promises. Promises he made to his people and promises that we can enjoy as the church, as Christians, because God has grafted us in with them. I'd like to conclude with just these verses from Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is what is coming, beloved the dwelling place of God with us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It is true that God who made promises is going to keep those promises and we can have a share in them of restoration. Restoration that follows repentance.